0: U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale. I am joined by the one, the only, the balding
1: Christoph. Yes, it's all true. I am one, I am only, and I am balding.
0: I, I gave away your secret. I'm sorry. It's
1: okay. It's a secret to my superpower. It's that I don't care about what people think of my hair.
0: I got. I'm receding a bit too. Yeah. So, you're in good company. Yeah.
1: It's a. Uh, it's the new look. I don't know if you know this. It's hot right now. Oh, is it? Oh, oh yeah.
0: So you're saying you're too hot to trot?
1: Um, no, I trot just fine. I'm just hot enough to still trot, but not too hot, cause then that's just it makes people uncomfortable.
0: All right, girls, we heard it here first. Guess who's not available because they're married. <laughs> 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 all right so uh we're uh, going to finish out the civil war by talking about the pacific coast theodore after we're, we talk about this we're done that's good
1: you know i've long thought that we should get the war behind us there's still so much conflict that has arisen from it it's good that we'll be done and that our it... podcast has helped to mend the wounds of, a, of an ailing nation.
0: I, I, I see where you went with your joke, but there are so many people still out there today who are bitter about it. Oh, yes, I know. Uh, <laughs> it, it, on,
1: on Many. Um, I, yes. You
0: no, know, Almost 200 years later? Mm-hmm. So let's get underway, shall we? Sure. All right. So during the succession, uh, Lincoln is elected president. In 1816, a group of Southern sympathizers in California made plans to succeed with Oregon to form the Pacific Republic. Their plans rested on a guy named Colonel Albert Sidney Johnson and his cooperation. And he was headquartered in Benecida California. And he commanded all of the troops in the Department of Pacific. Johnson met with some of these uh, southern gentlemen, but before they could actually propose anything to him, he told them that he had heard rumors of an attempt to seize San Francisco, their forts and arsenal, and that he had prepared for that. He would defend the facilities under his command with all of his resources to the last drop of the blood that was coursing through his veins whoa and he told them to tell their friends that's pretty bold (laughs) well i mean he's the one with the military not them so because of this that they he said right there that he was not helping them right the plans for california and oregon to succeed from the u.s never happened
1: okay i have a question so they were going to secede, and they, they were going to create—they weren't going to be part of the Confederacy, it doesn't sound like. They were going to be their own, like, third nation out—it was the United States, right? The Pacific Republic? Yes. And so the Southerners, or the Southern contingent of representatives or whomever, they were trying to get them to secede. Are, were they trying to get them to be a part of the Confederacy, or just to secede,
0: period, so it would weaken the— More than likely, they were going to help the Confederacy until they won and then go about their own way. I see. But that might have ended up being another whole fight. So the Union men around there, they feared Johnston would actually help the guys that wanted to succeed. And they telegraphed Washington to ask for a replacement. And so Brigadier General Edwin Voss Sumner was sent west through the Panama to replace Johnston in March of 1861. Johnston resigned his commission on April 9th. And after Sumner arrived on April 25th, turned over his command and moved with his family to L.A. For our non-American counterparts, that is Los So how did he get?
1: He was deployed to California, but I don't think the Panama Canal was in, in place until the early 1900s, right? So they had to sail
0: all the way around. Actually, no. What they used to do back during this time is they would sail to South America, into Panama. Okay. Cross Panama on land, get back into another boat, and then sail up the coast. I see. Yeah, I, that makes a lot more sense. Okay. On March 20th of 1861, the newly formed Arizona Territory Territory voted to separate from New Mexico Territory and join the Confederacy. This increased the Union's fears of a sectionist movement to separate Southern California from the rest of California and join the Confederacy. This fear was based on the Southern California desire from separation from the rest of California that they were demonstrating that they wanted to do. and During the vote in 1859, the PICO Act, and that passed overwhelmingly. So the strength of the secessionists in the area and their declared intentions and activities, which included forming militia companies. That made all of their fears run rampant. So at the outbreak of the Civil War, the succession of Southern California was possible, at least it seemed to be. The populace was largely in favor of separation from the Northern Californios. So militias with secessionist sympathies were formed, and Bear Flags, the which is the banner of the Bear Flag Revolt, had been flown for several months by secessionists in Los Angeles and in San Bernardino counties. And after the word of the Battle of Fort Sumter reached California, there were public demonstrations by these secessionists. Uh, now, only San Diego had a small Union garrison. But when they moved three companies of federal cavalry from Fort Mahav to Fort Tijon into Camp Fitzgerald in Los Angeles in May and June of 1861, that pretty much slammed the door for succeeding. They were like, okay, we now have a lot more professional soldiers. It's not just those 10 guys in the fort. Right
1: well what a that that simple move may have uh kept California united and not I, I don't know it just would have been such a different present
0: if California had done something differently, I think maybe so General Johnston, you know how he was he he told people that he wasn't going to allow them to to fight and because they were. They thought that he would. They sent that letter to Washington. Well, they came for him. The union authorities came for him, and he evaded arrest and ended up joining the Successionist Militia Company, the Los Angeles Mounted Rifles, as a private. He left Werner's Ranch on May 27th and journeyed across the southwestern desert to Texas crossing the Colorado River into Confederate territory of Arizona on July 4th, 1861. There was a guy who was the under-sheriff of Los Angeles County. Him and a few other influential men in El Monte, California, had formed another successionist militia on March 23rd in 1861. These were called the Mounty Mounted Rifles. They plan to assist Johnston and they were thwarted because under Sheriff King ran afoul of federal authorities when army officers at, uh, at San Pedro held up a shipment of arms from a guy named John G. Downey who was the governor of California and this, since they couldn't get armed, they disbanded because they couldn't do nothing that was a Yeah, that's about what I would do, too. It's like, hey, I got no gun. (laughs) So a guy named Major William Scott Ketchum, he was given the job of supervising Los Angeles, San Bernardino, San Diego, and Santa Barbara counties. So he came from San Francisco to San Pedro on a boat. And made a quick march to an encampment near San Bernardino on August 26th. And he had companies D and G of the 4th Infantry Regiment. And they got reinforced in September by a detachment of 91st U.S. Dragoons and a howitzer.
1: What is a dragoon? Dragoon?
0: Is, is, the, is it a mounted
1: it, soldier or.? Yes. Okay.
0: It is, it is the word that originally meant mounted infantry. Okay. They would be known later as Light cavalry. Ah. Uh, so, he did get, you know, a little bit of... Uh, well, he he did encounter some snipers that were sniping at his camp. But because they were there, that pretty much... Shut down any secessionist uprising yeah. from Beville in California, and when the dragoons came out into the streets of San Bernardino at the end of a election day that uh anybody outright uh anybody out protesting was pretty much shut down.
1: this is very illuminating this is not something I would have uh y- y- I never hear about it out of California in fact just to know that there were so many confederate sympathizers and they were very close they were protesting in order to secede and they're shutting down people's free speech but because it's so tense that's uh that's wild i i you are instructing me for the first time on these facts uh my public school education has let me down
0: keep in mind it's also wartime so a lot of rights and freedoms are also null and void during this time.
1: Is that what it says in the constitution? I
0: don't know. No but you know the guys with guns make the rules during Mm -hmm. war. That's just the way it works. So Union commanders would rely on the San Bernardino mounted rifles and a guy named Captain Clarence E. Bennett for intelligence. They were They were spying on people, and they used this uh, intelligence to hold the pro-Southern San Bernardino County for the Union uh, until federal troops were able to be withdrawn and replaced by California volunteers. Uh, On September 25th of 1861, the District of Southern California was established, and its headquarters was at Camp Latham, which was west of L.A., and then later it was moved to Drum Barracks. It was first formed to control the secessionist majority population in Southern California. And it included the Tulare County, which was north of them. Which at the time was actually much larger than it is in present day. It also included what is now Kings, Kern, Inyo counties, and part of Fresco County as well, or Fresno County as well. Okay. So from Camp Latham, Ketchin's regular soldiers were relieved on October 20th by three companies of the 1st, California Cavalry. They were sent out and established Camp Carlton, which was, and then later Camp Morris. Volunteer troops were also sent to Camp Wright in San Diego County to watch the Southern overland approach to California across the Colorado desert from Fort Yuma. Because, you know, you got to shut areas down that people will be able to cross, and it is possible to cross the desert.
1: Oh, yes. Not my favorite place to cross, uh, if I'm going to be honest with you, but it's possible.
0: Well, yeah, it gets really hot there and then really cold all in the same day.
1: Yeah, just make up your mind, nature. <laughs>
0: Uh, they were also instructed to intercept uh, secessionist sympathizers traveling to the east to join the Confederate Army. And in March of 1862, all the troops drilling at Camp Latham were transferred to Camp Drum, leaving a company of soldiers to observe the L.A. area. Then came the Great Flood of 1862, and they had to evacuate all their garrisons to New Camp Charleston, which is near the secessionist hotbed of El Monte. And for the rest of the Civil War, Union garrisons were maintained in Southern California. Now, there were a few uh, battles in California, but they were all Army battles, nothing Navy. So, uh, all we will say about that is that the a lot of people were hurt, and uh, there was a lot of Native American fighting there as well. So, we'll move on to the Pacific Squadron operations. Here we go, Navy stuff! Here we go! So, because of the blockade of the Confederacy, the Union Navy could not spare any ships to guard the ports and the shipping of the Pacific Coast. So, that meant the Pacific Squadron was relatively small. There was one ship on station at all times at Panama City to protect that Pacific terminal of the gold shipments carried by the vessels of the Pacific Mail, and the remaining ships patrolled the coast between Panama and British Columbia as needed. The Mare Island Naval Shipyard in San Francisco Bay was the squadron's permanent base. So to protect the ports, especially San Francisco, and the shipping points of gold and silver for the Pacific Coast from attack by Confederate commerce raiders, or even the British and French fleets, forts were built and improved. Coastal fortifications at Fort Point, at Camp Sumner, were built at the edge of the Presidio, as well as at Fort Baker on the Marion Headlands. There is one civil area civil era fort that is actually still there. No kidding. Can you guess which one? It's on the West Coast. It's very famous. I know you know it. I'm sure. Sh- uh, you're gonna beat yourself up if I have to tell you. I'm. Oh, hold
1: on. Hold on. Hold on. Uh, West Coast. For whatever reason, all that comes to mind is Alcatraz, and I know that's not right. You
0: are incorrect. It is Alcatraz. Really? Okay. It is. Well,
1: go me. This
0: was. This was the post of Alcatraz Island, or Fort Alcatraz. All and right. for those that don't know, this is a rocky island just inside the Golden Gate Bridge. It served as a prison for secessionists, and later became uh, the Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary. San Francisco Bay was also protected by the Benicia Arsenal, Fort Mason at San Francisco's Port jo- San Jose, and Camp Reynolds on Angel Island. They established two forts at the mouth of the Columbia River because it was the gateway to the new Idaho gold fields. In eighteen sixty two, a camp called Post at Camp Disappointment. Is that the real name of that camp or Or Yeah, well, at Cape Disappointment. Oh but yeah. Well. Still, Post at Cape Disappointment was established in Washington Territory. Fortifications were built and artillery is stalled to cover the mouth of the river. In 1863, Fort at Point Adams was established in Oregon on the south bank of the mouth of the Columbia River to pretty much function the same as Fort Cape Disappointment. And then posts were also established at the ports of San Diego, San Pedro Bay, Santa Barbara, Noyo... Humboldt Bay, and Fort Vancouver. In 1864, Santa Calita Island was seized by the federal forces, and there was a post-established and garrisoned there. And the population was removed to prevent it from being used as a base for privateers. They need to kick the people out so they don't become
1: pirates. Right. I wonder if they still have that land as a federal... Acquisition or if it was ever returned.
0: Well, they had considered making it a reservation for Indians captured in the Bald Hills War. Okay. But I'm sure that they uh, pulled out eventually and gave it back. So, after the failure of the New Mexico Campaign to the end of the Civil War, there were some attempts by the Confederate Navy to steal the gold and silver and to raid commerce from the Union in the Pacific Ocean. We have a few examples. In 1863, a guy named Asprey Harpending was traveling to Richmond in secret. Don't tell anybody, shh. Your secret's safe with me, Dale. He was to obtain a letter of mark. He was joined by other California members of the Knights of the Golden Circle, in San Francisco, and outfitted a schooner, J.M. Chapman. And they wanted to use that boat as a Confederate privateer in San Francisco Bay. Their objective was to raid ships on the Pacific coast carrying gold and silver shipments to, you know, give it to the supporters so they don't go broke. Their attempt was found out, and they were arrested on March 15th during the night of their intended departure by the USS Cyan, the revenue officers, aka tax cops, and the San Francisco police. And I don't know if you were part of this or even listened to the podcast, that podcast yet, but revenue officers or the tax cops are now the U.S. Coast Guard.
1: No kidding. I did not hear that. And now I know.
0: Now you know. And knowing is half the battle.
1: U.S. Navy.
0: Nice. (laughs) All right. You didn't go copyrighted. Oh, no. Why would I do that? (laughs) So after the J.M. Chapman was seized, there were union men, of course, everywhere along the coast. And they are now alarmed and alert because they were like, if this guy tried, others will too. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Among the papers captured on the Chapman was one letter disclosing plans for the capture of the USS Shoebrick. But it seems that, uh, you know, it never happened, probably because they got found out. In Victoria, British Columbia, a guy named Alan Francis, who was the U.S. consul, believed he had discovered a plot to seize the Shoebrick. He thought that the captain of the Shoebrick and some of his crew were the inside men. He arranged for the ship to be taken and sailed back to the U.S. by a trusted second officer and members of the crew, while the captain and the rest of the crew were ashore in Victoria. Uh, Allen also believed that there was a plot by the Confederacy sympathizers in Victoria to purchase ships in British Columbia, And to refit them as privateers. But of course, this plan also had really no evidence. Mm. So in the spring of 1864, the Confederate Navy ordered a guy named Captain Thomas Edgerton Hogg to take his men on board a coastal steamer in Panama City and then to seize her while underway, then arm her and attack the Pacific mail steamers and whalers in the North Pacific. It's quite a plan. Yeah. a American consul, a guy named Thomas Savage in Havana, learned about this plan and notified Rear Admiral George F. Pearson in Panama City. The admiral had the passengers boarding the steamer at Panama City watched, and when Hogg and his uh, guys was found aboard the... Panama Railroad steamer, Salvador, he sent men from the USS Lancaster over and arrested them and brought them to San Francisco. They were tried by military commission as pirates and were sentenced to be hanged. Whoa. Uh, A guy named General Irving McDowell did step in and commute their sentences to try to prevent any further attempts to seize Pacific Coast shipping General McDowell ordered each passenger on board American merchant steamers to surrender all weapons when boarding the ship, and every passenger and their baggage searched. This is when the TSA is born. Sounds like it, yeah. (laughs) Of the high seas. And all officers were armed for protection of their boats. Lastly, the CSS Alabama operated in the Pacific for a couple weeks. And in the... Southwest Pacific. Southwest Pacific. They captured three ships. The CSS Shenandoah was the second Alaska Confederate raider to enter the Pacific Ocean, but you know by that time its attacks came too late because it was at the end of the war, and they did most of the damage after the war was over. They captured thirty-eight vessels, mostly whalers. It's a lot of
1: vessels. Yeah, I guess prize ships or what? What's the purpose
0: there? To disrupt shipping. And they would take them as prizes. And if found in court to be a valid prize, their boats would be sold and everything auctioned off. And There we go. They get a portion of the proceeds.
1: Okay. So, I have a... Can I ask a couple questions? Absolutely! Okay. So, uh, Letter of Mark... I think I know what that is, but let me clarify. Is that it's like permission from a governmental body like or a kingdom or whatever to basically commit piracy, right?
0: No. Okay. It is a letter from the government giving permission to raid and attack and capture enemy vessels of that country.
1: I see. So you're acting as an agent of the country and if they're at war with another country, you are enabled to fight against them.
0: Right. It was much more profitable being a uh privateer in this capacity than to than to be part of the, the Navy. And this is how navies blustered their numbers by hiring privateers with a letter of mark. Okay. Piracy is different because they just went after everybody. Okay a lot of these privateers ended up being pirates after, you know, the letters of mark were resi- rescinded after the wars were over. But yeah. There, there there's a distinct difference.
1: Okay, that that makes sense. And then the other one, uh do you think hanging is still the punishment for piracy today?
0: Depends on the country.
1: Well, United States. No. Okay.
0: Not You'll be imprisoned.
1: Okay. Not that I'm exploring career options right now into piracy but you know you you gotta count the cost you know what i mean
0: well it is a federal crime so you will do federal time if caught and i'm sure if you kill someone while in the commission of your crime that will upgrade you to the death penalty and in the united states that is lethal all right
1: i'm going to uh reevaluate my career option thanks yes yes you're welcome. Oh, that's all of, of the questions yeah. for now. Thanks.
0: <laughs> no worries. So back to the uh, the Shenandoah. W- words of the, the their attacks came to the Pacific squadron. They sent out boats to hunt them down, but ended up not being able to find it. I mean, you're looking for one boat in the Pacific Ocean. Now, granted, they're not going too far from land, but it's still a lot of area to cover. It turned out that the uh, guy, the captain of the Shenandoah, a guy named Commander James Waddell, he figured out that the war was actually over. And he was like, oh crap, I was doing piracy. To Britain we go. And they went to Britain. Wow. Because so he's like, I-, I ain't getting tried for piracy. <laughs> So the last part, we're just going to touch on the Native Americans real quick. So the campaign classification established by the United States National Park Service lists only one campaign and one battle in this theater, which was the Battle of Bear River. Thing is, this is not right. There were actually a few campaigns against different Indian tribes beside the eastern Shoshone For instance, in Northern California, there was an ongoing Bald Hills War. This was between 1858 and 1864. And this was against the... And if I butcher these names, I apologize immensely. Tiula, Lasik, Hupa, Matoli, Nangadi, Sinkyon, Tungswee, Walikai, and Wilcutt Tribes. The, I, yeah, I think you it, said all of them right. Yeah? I. Pff, that's how I've heard it. I, I, I hope I did. Uh, from December 12th, 1861, this theater was incorporated into the district of Humboldt with its headquarters in Fort Humboldt. The Bald Hills War was essentially a long-standing irregular war requiring gar- uh, garrisons to protect the settlements and to escort the pack trains and and long patrols as well which resulted in skirmishes at times the some california units remained in new mexico territory and west texas as garrisons to defend the area from the confederacy returning and they fought the Navajo and Apache Wars until after the Civil War when the Union stepped back in and relieved them in 1866. Because, you know, they weren't fighting the Confederacy anymore, so they can come back and do their jobs. Right. Between 62 and 63, California cavalry units from the Southern California District fought the Owens Valley Indian War against the Owens Valley And again, if I mess this up, I apologize. Piutes, and against their allies among the Kauai Sioux in the Sierra Mountains to the west. And then throughout the Civil War, Oregon and California Volunteer Patrols had several clashes with the Ute, Goshute, Paiute, Bannock, and Shoshone bands in Oregon and the territories of Washington which is later Idaho, also in Utah and Nevada. However, the invasion of the territory by the Snake Indians, by gold miners in 1863, brought on the Snake War. And volunteers from California, Oregon, and Washington Territory fought the Snake Indians until the Federal troops relieved them in 65, which the Federals continued the war until 68. And that is the Pacific Theater of the Civil War. Well, that was interesting. I mean,
1: th- that is probably one of the more neglected areas of the Civil War, I think, from a U.S. perspective.
0: But Not as much happened on the West Coast as on the East Coast, so that is probably why it is neglected. Oh, no, that makes total sense.
1: But just to know what the mindset was and the how people were thinking and feeling during this time and what you know that it that's important it's they're part of the United States they should be represented
0: in the history here but that's cool tell you what californians let us know if in school you are taught any of this yeah
1: i'd be curious to know that also or if uh, it's whitewashed with the rest of the US that's right like when i think of los I- angeles now i don't think of Oh yeah they were trying to secede and become a pro confederate uh
0: entity but got pretty much shot down by the uh, by the army right away right and frightened into submission ah uh, okay well uh guess what that's the end of the civil
1: war well congratulations to the union on winning the civil war
0: so any last thoughts or uh or, you know... Musings or a, something? <laughs> musings on, on the
1: Civil War? Uh, Yeah. As we went through these battles and just kind of understanding what was happening individually, like in the naval engagements specifically, but just generally just as forts were being attacked or different uh, military movements were happening, what people did and what they were forced to do and how, like, hey, we need to surrender or we're being shelled or these people are being killed, or how they... It seemed more personal in uh, your recountings of these events. Like, when you hear about the Civil War, it's battles and numbers, and it's more broad strokes, but I think going through it with you, you could kind of feel the... like, the desperation of the Confederacy in a lot of situations, or the, the frustration of the Union, or how it affected the populace of various
0: areas and i thought that was cool so we are partnered with hero where we like to honor one of our fallen angels at the end of most of our episodes so today we are honoring lieutenant commander harvey c iu he was from baltimore maryland He served in the Fleet Air Reconnaissance Squadron, VQ-1, World Watchers. He received the Air Medal with numeral 1. His date of sacrifice was March 16, 1970. Killed in action in Da Nang Air Base, Republic of Vietnam. He was 39 years old. So Harvey was born in Baltimore, Maryland on May 2, 1930. His father, Chadwick, was a native Hawaiian who came to the continental US to study at the University of Maryland. There he met his wife, Marianne Pitts of Richmond, Virginia, and after college the couple settled in Baltimore. Harvey graduated from Baltimore's for- Forest Park High School in 1948 and he spent a year at Western Maryland College before enlisting in the United States Navy and with many Maryland students applying for appointment in the US Naval Academy at Annapolis the IU family reached out to Hawaii's delegate to Congress Joseph Farian and at the time Hawaii was a US territory IU was given an appointment to Annapolis as the third alternate and when the two students ahead of him failed to pass the entrance exam he took the exam and was admitted to the academy in July of 1949 at Annapolis he enjoyed he played on the navy's varsity lacrosse team in his second year, Ayu made his first visit to the Hawaiian Islands by hitching a ride on a military plane. Uh, according to the Honolulu Star Bulletin, he tasted his first poi, danced his first hula, and today is having his first bout with a surfboard. Harvey visited his aunt, Vera Kamikona, in Honolulu, whom he'd only known through letters and whose strict address he used for his first official address at the academy. Returning to Annapolis, IU graduated from the academy and was commissioned as an ensign on July 5, 1953. And his first assignment was on the USS Calvert, APA-32, which is an attack transport operating off the Korean Peninsula as hostilities in the Korean War came to an end. After being detached from the Calvert in February of 1954, IU received flight training at Naval Air Station, Pensacola, Florida then more training at Naval Air Station Hutch- Hutchinson in Kansas. He was designated as a naval aviator on April 26, 1955 and assigned to Airborne Early Warning Squadron 1. Assignments at Naval Air Station glynco in Georgia began in 1959, and the Naval History and Heritage Command details his rise in rank and responsibility from 1962 to 1969. Quote, In May 1962, he joined the staff of Commander Carrier Division 1 as Assistant Combat Information Center Officer and in February of 1963, reported for training with Patrol Squadron 31. Transferred in August 1963 to Patrol Squadron 28, he served as Administrative Officer and Patrol Plane Commander until June 1965. Then he was assigned as Emergency Action Officer Team One Airborne Command Post, Operations Division at Headquarters, Commander-in-Chief Pacific. He reported in May 1966 for instruction at the Naval Postgraduate School, Monterey, California. In July 1967, he became head of the Naval Tactical Data System Programming Section, Fleet Computer Program Center, San Diego, California. While there, he received the degree of Master of Science in Management Science, from the united states international university san diego in 1969 in june of that year he joined fleet air reconnaissance squadron one to serve as electronic warfare aircraft commander in ec 121 m and computer systems analyst harvey Ayu achieved in rank to lieutenant commander in vietnam i unit flew an ec 121 m super constellation early warning aircraft, which is used to monitor North Vietnamese radio and radar transmissions. On March 6, 1970, Lieutenant Commander Iu Super Connie spy plane with a crew of 31 men experienced a mechanical problem as approached South Vietnam's Da Nang Air Base after a flight from Tinian Air Base in Taiwan. The, Bre- the Bureau of Aircraft Accident Archives recounts, quote, the engine number 4 was shut down in flight due to a generator overheating. On final approach, the plane was unstable and lost height. The crew was aware that the first 1,000 feet of the runway, 35L, were unserviceable due to repair, so we increased power on the three remaining engines. At a height of about 40 feet, the tail stalled and struck the runway surface. Out of control, the airplane crashed in flames and struck several equipments on ground. Eight occupants and two people on the ground were injured, while 23 occupants were killed. Lieutenant Commander Harvey Ayu, at age 39, was among the 23. Lo- left behind were his wife, Ruth, and their three children, Peter, Kathleen, and Michael. He was laid to rest at Fort Rosecrans National Cemetery, overlooking the Pacific Ocean in San Diego, California. Lieutenant Commander Ayu is honored at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C., where his name is inscribed on panel 12W, line 2. So, Lieutenant Commander Harvey C.I.U., thank you. Thank you. So that is going to do it for us, Christoph. Take us out, please. All right. Well, once again, all you
1: fabulous people that are listening to us, thank you very much for your continued... uh, Please keep listening. Rate us if you can, uh, iTunes or whichever, uh, platform you hear us on. Um, we're also on YouTube. You can listen to us there and also rate us there. Uh, if you'd like to contact us, and make this a more, you know, interactive experience with uh, some back and forth, please do. Uh, you can email us at US Navy History Podcast at gmail.com or, uh, Tweet at us, or whatever the future equivalent of that is going to be on that platform, at USNHistoryPod, and, uh, you know, everybody that follows us will see what you said. So that'll be great. Uh, Finally, we have a Discord channel. You can find that and more in the show notes. Uh, Please join us and talk about all kinds of stuff. Ooh, I'm realizing I forgot to post a picture in our Discord last time. So I'm glad we're talking about this, and I'll have to do that right after this
0: episode. And as always, fair winds and following seas. See you next time. Take care. U.S. Naval History Podcast. Departing.